Broadcasting live from Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Women's Telehealth, whose mission is to bring scarce, high-risk maternal fetal medicine services to patients and referring obstetricians in their own community, urban or rural. Visit womenstelehealth.com for more information. Now, here are your hosts, Tanya Mack and C.W. Hall. What's up, Tanya Mack? Oh, we're going to have a good show today because it is about critical access. And I think that is we're uh, going to be able to provide people with a lot of information that may help in the moment. Sounds like it. I really so. changing some patient outcomes, giving them some access. That's right. Here. Our topic today is telestroke. And let me tell you a little bit about our topic and our guests. Um, in 2015, the CDC listed acute stroke as the fifth leading cause of death in the United States. And unfortunately, those who do survive often face serious long-term disability. It seems, though, that there's a mismatch between the patients that present with some kind of a stroke and accessibility to expert neurology care. So I looked up in the Census Bureau, estimates CW, that 20% of stroke patients live in rural areas, which, of course, typically don't have neurologists there. And I know that getting to the hospital and getting acute treatment very quickly is really a, a, an important factor in terms of how things go. Yeah, there's when a you're short, short, a short window. The first 60 minutes I know is critical, and we're going to hear more about that. Um, and a lot of times patients are diverted and transferred out to large tertiary care centers that may be 60 to 90 minutes away. Um, so they're kind of stuck out there in the medical desert with very little resources. So we're going to talk to the experts with us today. In the studio, we have two experts from In Touch Health. We have Dr. Matt Gwynn. Welcome, Dr. Gwynn. Thank you. And we have Julie Stover, who is the Director of National Strategic Accounts with InTouch. She's going to be telling us a little bit about how they do things a little bit differently with stroke and neurology care. And let me tell you, welcome, Julie. Thank you. And let me tell you a little bit more about both of them before we kind of get into the meat of the matter. Dr. Gwynn got his medical training at the University of Virginia Medical School did his residency at the University of Alabama and his fellowship back in Virginia. He's a board-certified neurologist. He was formerly the head of the Stroke Center for Northside Hospital and is now the chief of neurology at St. Joe's. And he's been listed as one of America's top docs by U.S. News and the World Report for many consecutive years. So again, welcome, Dr. Gwynn. Glad to have you here. It's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. And Julie, uh, Julie and I met a while ago, didn't we, Julie? We did. A couple of months ago. Julie actually has expertise in healthcare sales and operations that's specific to rural outreach initiatives. And she understands the importance of a well-defined strategy around healthcare for any organization. She and her teammates often work with leaders nationwide to develop and execute customized telehealth plans. So Dr. Gwynn will kind of fill in the information about the clinical side, and hopefully together they will help us understand a little bit more about the technology required uh, when they do things a little differently. So InTouch basically has a healthcare network um, where they can provide doctors and access to people like Dr. Gwynn. They also have FDA-cleared devices to support acute, acute and post-care um, work. And they also are in almost two, they have about 200,000 annual physician encounters, and they're in about 1,500 patient access locations. We're thrilled to have you guys here. You're one of the largest uh, providers of telemedicine in the United States today. So welcome. Great Thank to you. be here again. All right. So we're going to actually start off with you, Dr. Gwynn, very 
all the way back to the beginning, and let's talk a little bit about stroke. So can you tell us a little bit about the basics of stroke, the incidence of it, and kind of what is different rurally and with access versus you being ready and available in the emergency room? The word stroke refers to a blockage of a circulation to part of the brain, causing that part of the brain to die off because the brain, like every other organ in the body, is made up of cells. Cells make uh, <clears throat> up the brain, the skin, everything else, and they, they require blood flow, which has oxygen and nutrients to get to them. And when that is not present and it's uh, kept from them, they die off. And that's what a stroke is. Strokes come in two flavors, essentially. There's uh, the blockage of an artery, like a dirt in a garden hose where blood can't get through. And then there's a rupture of an artery or a vein so that blood gets out of the vessel. And for the same thing happens, essentially. The area that requires the blood to get there doesn't get it. So those cells die off. And whatever part of the body is controlled by that part of the brain stops working. So it can be speech, if it's in a language area of the brain. It can be weakness, if it's in a motor area of the brain, and so forth and so on. This is a really common problem. It's the most disabling condition among adults in the United States. And it is very, very common. 800,000 people a year have a stroke of some sort. And so there's more than one a minute of stroke in the United States. Yeah, big, big healthcare problem in the United States. So for the layperson, it's kind of like a brain attack, right? That's what we like to call it, a brain attack, like a heart attack. And like a heart attack, though, it's, it's usually painless. And so people often delay getting to centers. And it's more important to get to a, a hospital with a stroke than it is a heart attack in many cases, because the timing is much, much more narrow for treatment. Okay, so before we move any further into what happens once a patient presents, if we're in the community and we think that somebody has a stroke at our feet or we're nearby, what kind of things can the general public do to help the person? Well, if you think someone's having a stroke, which is sometimes the hardest part, uh, then the first thing to do is call 911. Don't do anything else except call 911. Get that person into the EMR, EMS system so they can get the person to a hospital. Um, don't wait around, are you feeling okay, and so forth, because <clears throat> the, oftentimes people will ignore the symptoms themselves, partly because much of a stroke, many of the times with a stroke, people have neglect. They're not aware that they're having a problem. Because this actually happened in my family. Somebody became disoriented, like should have known their spouse, but didn't recognize them all of a sudden didn't know where they were, and the wife thought they were just confused, but it actually was the beginning um, of a stroke. So something out of the ordinary that they see neurologically in their behavior, they should get help. Right, and there are going to be a lot of false starts. Yeah. And, uh, it's better, but it's better safe than sorry. Yeah, very good to know. So what happens when they actually get to the emergency room? What would, what would they be doing, and what would you be doing in the emergency room to help them? Fortunately, in the United States, more and more hospitals um, are becoming aware of uh, the urgency of stroke treatment because until 1996, there really was no treatment. We had used to have a staying in neurology that was diagnosed and adios. That we didn't have anything we could do for people, especially with stroke. But since 1996, when the, uh, a medication called tissue plasminogen activator was approved by the FDA for treatment, we now have a good treatment. And now recently even better treatments for stroke than we had two decades ago. So it's a true emergency. So in response to that, 
hospitals, most hospitals in the United States, especially in urban and suburban areas, are able to mobilize things very quickly and get stuff done so that patients can be taken care of. So what they do is they uh, first look for the symptoms, and if they have any inkling at all, then they usually uh, get the patient to a CT scan immediately. So the reason for that is to determine whether there's a hemorrhage or whether there's some kind of what's called ischemic stroke, which means a blockage, Mm -hmm. which is the most common kind of stroke. And if it's that second kind of, of stroke, then we can give this medication in a timely manner. So that I, we all are kind of conditioned to know that the first hour is critical. Is there a time limit that this uh, TPA administration is critical, or there's a time period of which it is not going to make a difference if you administer it? It's very important. Um, as you d- just I always use the tourniquet idea, if you put a tourniquet on someone's arm, uh, the arm will turn blue and white and so forth. And, and But if you take the tourniquet off soon enough, blood will restore flow to the arm and, and the, the arm damage isn't done. Right. So the idea is worse damage. Right. So in the brain, it's the same thing. You've got to get it, the blood flow back, in which case you can, you can salvage a lot or most, if not all of the brain tissue. But if you wait too long. So the answer is three hours is the standard of care for uh, from time of onset until uh, the administration of this TPA, as it's called. We can sometimes go up to four and a half hours, but the, the benefit diminishes greatly even after the first hour or two. So faster, the better. Okay. One of my questions is um, on the rupture side, you know, we have the blockage problem and then we have the rupture side. If Are you looking on the image, if it is a rupture, you would not administer TPA because it would do worse damage. It would actually cause more bleeding. Is that, is that kind not. of the line in the sand of yes. whether you administer or not? You need to know the results of that scan first? Yes, we absolutely have to know because we don't want to make people worse. Of course, if you give a, a, a medication that, that dissolves clots, which is what this does, then if you do that, you're going to just keep on bleeding into the brain. Right. I was wondering, do you have any feel for, since we have hospitals everywhere and people have strokes kind of everywhere, how many stroke centers are there in the United States or just in gen- like a percentage are half have a stroke resource and... The other half don't, or there is a growing awareness and uh, certification. Primary stroke certification, as it's called, um, is being uh, obtained more and more by hospitals. Uh, I don't think it's a majority yet, but uh, it's getting close to that uh, because Medicare. Uh, one of the one of the more very important diagnoses that they're watching is how people take care of people with stroke, how hospitals take care of people with stroke. So there's a a big in the both financially and socially for hospitals to do that. It's, there are still many hospitals who are not quite to do it well, and most of them are in rural areas because there is a lot of stuff that has to be in place. And one probably of gaps is, on neurologists available and, and is probably only, one of the biggest. That's right. There are only about 11,000 neurologists in the United States who are in the academy, and about half of them are academic. So there are only about five or 6,000 of us left to sort of do most of the care uh, for people and to complicate the problem because payments, the economics of it all is that it's very, very expensive and becoming more so to run a small business practice in neurology. Many neurologists are making the the sad but necessary decision to leave hospitals because mm-hmm. it's very expensive to be in a hospital. You have to stop what you're doing, especially now with stroke, and and go into the ER disrupting your entire clinic day and all the patients that are there. And um, 
<clears throat> and then take care of somebody for a while. Kind of like time. my business in obstetrics. Baby's coming. Get out and run. All the people in the office are kind of left right. behind. So, so the urgency, yeah, you can't escape really. You can't. And so and that, you can't predict either because you don't know who's going to roll in that day. You can't schedule it. Right. That's, right. That's right. So so the, the logical financial decision is for all neurologists, almost all neurologists to leave hospitals unless they're employed. Yeah. And unfortunately, a scarce resource. So we have a scarce resource. Scarce, exactly scarce resource. Yeah. Julie, I'd like to change to you a little bit more. One of the most interesting things about InTouch's practice is that um, you actually have a technology platform available in telemedicine resources as one of the nation's leaders to be able to offer this kind of a resource in the rural areas. So uh, Dr. Gwynn has kind of told us a little bit about what happens when they roll into a large center and when all the resources are available, um, but that's not every time. A lot of people have strokes in not an accessible area. Right. So why don't you start off and talk to us a little bit about your, both of you can talk a little bit about how you got connected and what you're doing a little bit differently. Okay. Well, we have had a partnership with with Dr. Gwen and his his partners for a long time and most of the time, not all of the time, but a lot of times that does originate in these rural outreach um, community-based, <clears throat> excuse me, community-based facilities. Part of the reason for that, Tanya, is just because of the lack of access to care. You know, it's very rare that you find a small rural community um, hospital or facility that that does employ a neurologist or has a neurologist on staff. And so for them, a lot of times the solution to that is telehealth. It not only enables that, that hospital and that facility to elevate the level of care that they're able to provide, but it brings that access to those patients quicker and faster. And you heard Dr. Gwen mention TPA a little while ago. And, and you know, there was a time where you saw many of those facilities that didn't even provide that type of a treatment because they weren't, you know, they weren't comfortable making that type of a determination on a patient without that oversight from a neurologist. And now telehealth enables those community hospitals and facilities to do that through the expertise and the oversight of, of you know, Dr. Gwen and many others through the enable, enablement of the technology. So it sounds like you guys connected actually sharing your platform in a center where you were actually providing the service. Is that kind of how you met or got started? Yeah. yeah. I, I, I can remember the day. Uh, <laughs> what, what happened is one of my colleagues um, had demoed this, one of their devices mm -hmm. called an RP7 in our own hospital at St. Joseph's about 2008 or so. He said, you know, this would be a great thing for you to do to have for rural hospitals. And at that time, there was a little tiny hospital in a, uh, Lake Oconee that uh, was interested in trying this. So we decided that, that we would do it there. Um, and then soon after that, uh, there was a hospital in East Point, Georgia, mm -hmm. that needed uh, services. And so we just had those little two little areas at first. And so um, that, uh, I then flew out to Santa Barbara and got to know some of the folks out there. And uh, we, um, we hit it off. And I, they have a fantastic network and, mm -hmm. and devices and very, very, very reliable. So we uh, really enjoyed working with them. And so they became our essentially our preferred provider, if mm -hmm. you will, mm -hmm. over over the years. Um, <clears throat> and so as time went on, we we grew very, very slowly, uh, just with a few sites at first and then and then over the last two or three years, um, reached sort of a critical mass where mm -hmm. we became known mm -hmm. around a little areas that um, that we could do a, a good job. 
And so people started calling us and, mm -hmm. and we, uh, we have worked with InTouch and they have about three or four different devices that we work with um, that are all very good. Mm -hmm. Julie, can you talk a little bit more about the platform? I know one of the sure. problems I see on the telemedicine side when I go into rural hospitals, even big urban hospitals, is they started their telemedicine program with one kind of cart or platform or whatever that worked a lot of times for stroke. And then as they tried to add other specialties and multi-uses, they were kind of a discombobulated system. Right. So I know InTouch kind of has an enterprise-wide right. platform. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the things you do and some of the peripherals you can use and that kind of thing? Sure. Well, I think, Tanya, one of the things that I would point out is that, you know, in the early days of telehealth or telemedicine, um, we had a tendency to think that if we had a device, if we had a piece of equipment, that meant we were doing telehealth. And what we quickly learned was that it, it's not a piece of equipment or it's not a, a device, a particular device that really creates a sustainable and a viable program. And it really is about the uh, delivering clinical care remotely into those environments. And we just happen to be using a piece of technology to do that. So once we really moved into this this mindset or this this thought process around, you know, the the expertise of developing that clinical workflow remotely around delivering care. And then on top of that, you layer on the the capabilities that the physicians need remotely in order to be able to do that. Um, that's really where InTouch has has perfected um, this delivery of, of remote care is really maximizing that engagement, that remote engagement between that physician and the patient and en enabling everything that they need or they could possibly need in that particular moment or that encounter in order to be able to do that. And one of the big pieces to that equation is really the connectivity and the reliability. And, you know, physicians need it to work. They need it to work every time. They need it to work quickly. And in that moment, they can't afford for it not to work. Especially the, we if we as have the an hour with the stroke patients. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, we we as patients can't afford for it not to work. So uh, we, you will hear us refer to ourselves many times as a managed service provider and really one of the big um, takeaways about InTouch Health is that from end to end, we manage that entire encounter for the health system and for that remote physician, making sure that that it's going to happen every time when they need for it to happen to deliver care. Yeah, I think another interesting thing as we've all learned through telemedicine is it's not just, uh, we're talking about strokes really as hospital-based, but now hospitals own physician practices, right. they own nursing facilities, they own kind of extensions yeah. of the hospital, which may require different platform requirements. Sure. So uh, I know you guys span not only the hub and spoke model of a hospital and their satellites, but we're now talking about going into the home. And can you address kind yeah. of the mushrooming of that absolutely. solution? Yeah, absolutely. So so really for these, for health systems in this day and time, it's about bringing access to patients regardless of where they may be. And to your point, Tanya, that could be in an emergency room, that could be on the floor of a hospital, that could be in an outpatient clinic, um, that could be in an urgent care center, that could be directly into their home. 
And um, it's kind of interesting thinking that healthcare originally kind of started being delivered mm-hmm. into the home, and then we made an evolution, and now we're we're making the one back again both yes, ways. Yes. That's right. Now we're making one back again, but it's but it's really about being able to follow that patient through that continuum of care, regardless of what their condition is, not just specific to stroke. And and our platform and our solution enables the health systems to be able to do that. It has the versatility and the scalability that they need to truly be able to address delivering uh, patient care in any environment at any time. Yeah, I know one of the things that uh, is a challenge too is the peripherals that get attached to the platform. I think a lot of patients think telehealth is more like encrypted Skype Mm -hmm. and they don't realize the extent to which we have uh, plug-in scopes and tools and all this kind of stuff that enable us to do virtual exams. I know another area of expertise that InTouch has is that you actually have done quite a bit of work with FDA-approved yes. peripherals. Can you talk about that briefly? Yeah, so the FDA actually uh, maintains a classification on this type of encounter or this type of engagement, and uh, they they really have specified that, you know, for those high acuity instances and those high acuity encounters um, where a diagnosis is being made and life-saving treatment is being delivered, that there is a certain level of classification that is required. And that's a class two level certification um, as a medical device. And InTouch Health carries that, that level of certification in the marketplace. And to your point, you know, about Skype and FaceTime and all of those things that we do on a daily basis with our friends and our loved ones. At the end of the day, number one, you can't be guaranteed that level of connectivity and reliability. And number two, it's just not secure. Mm-hmm. So from a privacy and a HIPAA perspective, you know, you want to make sure that that you're protected even when care Encrypted. is being yeah, yes. mm-hmm. even when care is being delivered remotely, that privacy is still important for those patients. Right. So I want to go back to Dr. Gwynn for a few minutes. I I read that the Joint Commission is accrediting stroke centers. And at the very beginning, you mentioned this was one of the um, things that is actually helping your specialty kind of get care to patients faster as we educate hospitals and get resources into hospitals. Can you kind of talk about when you go into a rural hospital or when you're I know your service also helps hospitals get their accreditation. Kind of what is that process? What are some of the challenges that you have? Like how often do you change equipment or what kind of resources do you have to commit to get a stroke center up in kind of a rural area or not in a rural area? It's actually the same for rural or non-rural. Okay. Uh, but that's a good, but rurals are, are good as illustrative points because they have the most to gain and also the most difficult challenges because generally most neurologists, being the scarce commodity you talked about, aren't living in that area. So this is the perfect solution. Neurology is the one specialty out of dozens and dozens that really fits the best with telemedicine because everything we do is observational. It's talking to patients, talking to the families, examining people by looking at them and asking them to do things such as hold the arms out and talk, and then looking at scans, which we can do through the devices and the software that InTouch provides, and then make a decision about treatment. And the big decision in most cases is stroke, but although we about 20% of what we do is not stroke, uh, other things such as seizures and so forth. But to address your point, what 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 a hospital, any hospital needs to be primary stroke certified, which means they are ready to take care of patients with strokes of all types, is to have a neurologist, 
and a stroke champion, as they call it, somebody locally who uh, can can co coordinate all the things that have to be done. They have to have a, a dedicated CT scan that's available 24-7, and they have to have capability of taking care of anybody with a stroke. It's pretty straightforward, but the big deal is the neurology. So we, I like to, when we, when we formed acute care telemedicine um, seven years ago, I started calling us fraction, fractional neurologists. We're there when you need us, not when you don't. If you had to hire two people, two neurologists to take call, because really one can't take 24-7 call, you'd have about a million dollars that first year in recruitment and salary and so forth. We, in a rural area, would do it for 3% of that, perhaps, or 5% or, or, you know, of that, and, and it would be very, very uh, efficient. And that's the beauty of this, is that we can do it that way. Um, so... One thing we do to help them is just be available. The second is we help them working through their order sets and their other um, requirements, uh, the uh, the joint commission requirements. And that's uh, something we do by attending meetings, usually remotely, and um, and helping them with their planning. So one question I have on the rural side, do they typically have the imaging capability that you need already in the hospital? You mentioned that the neurologist themselves is the big biggest missing piece. Right. Or are they having to make imaging investments? Uh, almost every hospital nowadays has a CT scanner. Okay. Most uh, Many do not have MRIs, but MRIs are not necessary. They're not necessary to take care of people with stroke in a primary stroke center. What you want to make sure is there's no bleeding. We haven't really talked on it, but the best thing about uh, stroke lately is the what we can now do besides just give a drug, and that's thrombectomies. And I don't know if you want to talk about yeah, that now or later. Yeah, let's jump into it. But the, the really, really good thing is that when a person has a blockage of an artery, like a big artery, like the carotid in the neck or one of the branches inside the brain, just like in cardiology, we can now take a catheter certain people who are qualified to do this, not I, can take a catheter and go up the arteries in, through the aorta and into the brain and actually suck out that clot or pull it out and open it up. And, it, and, and then the blood flow can be restored because only about a third of people that get TPA get a whole lot better. Two thirds don't, but that's a heck of a lot enough, but better than nothing. Um, but a lot more can be helped, especially if you have big strokes and they're going to be really disabled, nursing home type of uh, mm -hmm. disabled that can um, that can be benefit that can benefit from a thrombectomy. So our job now, also in addition to deciding about whether somebody should get TPA, is also which people benefit from this next step because it can be totally Lazarus-like, where someone rises from the dead. And then would those be patients that would be transferred somewhere where they can have a qualified surgeon do the thrombectomy? In most cases, yes. So we have, we're at several urban centers, including in Richmond and, and uh, here in town, where, where it can be done right there. Mm -hmm. But most cases have to be transported. So the usual heuristic, if you want to call it that, is to decide whether a person should get TPA. Mm -hmm. And uh, they should get TPA if they qualify. And then at that, as that TPA is going in over an hour, we decide whether they are also candidate. candidates. And the way you do that is we send them back to the CAT scan and we get this really fancy, cool thing called a CT angiogram, which is uh, a way of looking at the arteries directly, very precisely, just by putting dye in the vein again and doing a CAT scan. And it's painless and very quick and can be read immediately. And then if there's a, if there's a blockage, we can say, 
uh, and in my case, I call the people usually at Marcus Stroke Center or perhaps at Kennesaw, and um, and I can say, um, I've got this patient here who has a bad stroke, and here's the story. And here, oh, by the way, on the internet, you can look at this these images yourself. And then he, on the uh, the interventionist, can make that decision. So then we transport them to one of these two places. Mm -hmm. So actually, even though you may not be able to do it locally through your telemedicine and transfer of images, you can expedite a transport. That's right. And if it's uh, in Dothan, for example, um, which is another big uh, place we have, uh, another big center, or in Phoebe Putney or other places, we can tra actually have them by air transport to, to Atlanta. If it's in um, Knoxville area, we can go to the center in Knoxville. There's lots of different, we, we know the local places in Richmond at St. Mary's and so forth. Okay. I want to kind of get back to the other 20%. Mm -hmm. So we've talked most of our time about telestroke. You alluded to the fact that there's about 20% of other diagnoses that you're able to treat, like, for example, epilepsy. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about the other services that you provide neurologically for patients that present in a rural area where there's limited resources? We do want to make sure people ha who have hemorrhages, is what you're talking about, are treated appropriately. There are two essentially two types of hemorrhages. There's a subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is the one where you get the worst headache of your life and a stiff neck and, and have trouble. And then there's an intracranial, intracerebral hemorrhage inside the brain or inside the, the brain tissue of sorts. And that's a whole different ballgame as well. And these are all things we have to differentiate. Um, what we do in those situations is um, arrange you know, proper treatment. The treatment is actually simpler for some of those. Um, because there's not a great intervention. Subarachnoid hemorrhages, of course, have to be, you have to determine whether they have an aneurysm because that, that's really important to know and, that, and treat early on. But that's what we do. We, we essentially help them understand what to do next. Now that's a purview mostly of neurosurgery though. So they'll, we'll end up having a neurosurgeon. Okay, very good. So not just the telestroke, but the whole extension of neurology being we, piped in. We can actually do even routine consultations if we, um, uh, that, that's not something we've uh, we focused on, but that's gonna be the next big deal is is essentially because what we do with, a, with an aid of a nurse in a room can be done exactly as we do it in person. We, this is the future of this, of my field is going to be seeing folks all over the country, sitting in your own office and with the with the aid of other people um, to make diagnoses and treatments, both inpatient and outpatient. That's a good point you make. So on the collaborative end, whoever is your hands on the other end where the patient presents, is that nurse is a clinical person? Is that nurses? Are those uh, ER docs? Who are you collaborating with on the other end? We, re we request, uh, strongly request, that a nurse of some sort, uh, an, an RN, uh, or or more, uh, be in the room when we do the your exam. Uh, the exam for for a number of reasons. One is, for example, visual fields are a little diff sometimes difficult to do on the on the machine. Uh, that is where you know can you see on both sides and so forth. Um, and then sensory exams and so forth. And on the rare occasions, uh, there are certain diseases rare as they are that where reflexes are important. Um, and that's going to become more and more important as we do routine consultations for people who are, say, confused and been that way for a while. And, and these are um, or Parkinson's disease patients. And or do, so does somebody have a spinal cord injury or a disease? And that kind of thing is going to help. We, we need somebody feet on the ground. But it, it can be an extent, a physician extender, such as an NP, nurse practitioner, excuse me, or PA, um, or it could be an RN. 
right? So there's a lot of moving parts. There's technology, there's people on the presenting and with the patient, there's you back at the other side. It brings up a good point, and that is quality. Julie, you alluded that to that when we talked to you about the platform itself. I'd like to hear from both of you about kind of how do you gauge quality and what are important aspects both on the clinical side and the technology side. Julie, why don't we start with you? Yeah, well, I think that one thing that that's important is that you you don't want quality to suffer just because care is being delivered remotely. There really should be no difference in the level of care that a patient's receiving, regardless of where the physician happens to be. So Dr. Gwen makes a great point about those that are at the bedside and working very collaboratively with not only the nurses, but also the physicians that happen to be physically practicing within that particular location. And so one of the things that we do through InTouch Health uh, in in collaboration with Dr. Gwen and, and many others, really regardless of the service line actually, is we go in and we, we really develop and identify the workflow to delivering that care at the bedside. And we work with the physicians on what it is they need to, to accomplish to deliver that care and to identify, you know, appropriate diagnosis and treatment. And then we provide that level of education. They are on, the, on site, physically on the ground with the local clinicians. And, and so then again, we, if it is a stroke, if it, you know, if we are doing a telestroke type program, we run, run mock codes and mock drills to make sure that, that, you know, everything is fine tuned and that we're ready to go. And really, again, you pick your service line, Tanya, it, it really does not matter. But, um, but we really go through a very, very defined process to make sure that, that we have all of our I's dotted and all of our T's crossed and, uh, and that we're going to be able to deliver the highest level of quality possible even though the doctors may not physically be standing at the bedside. Do you find that once you set up and implement that training program so you're comfortable with the quality, that turnover is a factor? I was having lunch with a couple of rural hospital CEOs last week, and I said, what's your biggest challenge? And they said, turnover Turnover. of staff. So we get them all trained. Um, right. Do you have a program where you go back in or you do long distance training or how do you handle that? Actually, all of the above. Okay. So so in the beginning, you know, we'll do a lot of physical on-site training um, that with with everyone. Uh, the, the physicians have a certain type of training that they go through. I think that that's a big question that folks always ask is standing at the bedside of a patient and delivering care is a little bit different than delivering care through a a piece of technology or equipment. And so there is specific training that we also do with the physicians that can also be done in person or it can be done remotely. We have a simulation lab where they can go 24 hours a day, seven days a week and practice on the equipment and practice in the environment. So all of those different types of things are available to them. But turnover is obviously an issue. And I wish that we could solve that Mm -hmm. issue, but I'm not sure that anybody has the answer to that. But uh, but we do train the trainer type sessions so they can they can do training at any time. Many of these organizations make it part of their orientation process. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then we're always available to go back. So in availability plus on demand. Yes, yeah. exactly. Dr. Dr. Quinn. I was going to say that, you know, physician services, being a neurologist and having us available is, is necessary, but not sufficient. What we really have to have is a, a network that works. And the beauty of InTouch Health is that they make devices that are that are always on, always on. You don't have to flip, do a switch. You don't have to do anything. They sit next to the wall and they're pinged every two minutes or so to make sure they're working. If they're not, if somebody's on, on the case immediately. So if I need to see somebody in Richmond, I know that as soon as I go down the list, click that robot, 
It comes on, I can then usually drive that robot wherever I need to do. No one has to do anything, no one except me. And that's the beauty of it, so that you don't have to worry about someone turning the card on and making sure this in the right place because I can do that myself. And that is enormously helpful. And the network is always working, which is not true with many of the others. Right. So I know on the clinical side, we never aspire to be the IT team. <laughs> we do right. not well, want that 6 a.m. call or click the button and yeah, nothing happens. For I think sure. that's such a great point because we've spent a lot of time here today talking about the lack of physicians in, in some of these communities and in some instances, the lack of nurses. But it really goes even further beyond that. Sometimes it's just the lack of resources, period. And so if you go to even just the technical aspects of these programs and, you know, they may not even have 24-7 IT support in their particular facilities or wherever they they happen to be delivering care. So the way, again, going back to my, my previous comment about being a managed service provider, the way that we support these facilities really, really takes those types of things out of the equation. So they don't have even to Even for the IT team yeah, inside that's right. the hospital. That's that's right. right. Yeah. That's right. So, exactly. Yeah. So it is always ready and uh, and always available when they need to use it at any time. Julie, you mentioned when we were talking about QA um, that InTouch offers a couple of other services. You span many service lines. Yeah. Can you talk about your other service lines? Sure. Actually, over 30 different service lines today. So it, um, many, many things from from maternal fetal medicine, you know, a lot of different women's and children's services, a lot of pediatric subspecialties we're finding are also in great demand. And uh, to burn services, you know, a lot of trauma centers nationwide that, that need to extend those burn services. And, um, and much, much more. Uh, infectious disease, critical care, uh, behavioral health is a huge one. Um, behavioral health nationwide is obviously a, a big issue. And so we have a lot of our centers that it seems like just as soon as they start a telestroke program or teleneurology program, telemental health is mm -hmm. right behind it. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. So what we do is we work with them to modify that workflow to accommodate those additional um, service lines that they want to deliver care. And, and in some instances, since we are talking a lot today about rural health, um, we have critical access facilities nationwide that in some instances are delivering um, dozens of different service lines into their facility remotely and therefore keeping their doors open. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's really what it's about is expanding. And they're not transferring out. So some that's of their revenue right. stays local. Absolutely. And so, you know, here in Georgia, we have such such an epidemic with, with these small rural community hospitals that are so challenged on a daily basis. And, and I would argue that the answer to that, to keeping their doors open is, how do you bring more services in when you can't necessarily afford to employ the physicians live there in person? It's telehealth. Yeah, because they're basically letting the revenue out the door. That's right. When you talked your about patients, Dr. Gwynn fractionating the cost yeah, of that, it makes your it affordable. Your patients are leaving your community. So yeah. it's better for the patients. I, I tell people all the time, telehealth is, is the first thing I've had an opportunity to work with them where I feel like everybody wins. Um, but at the end of the day, the most important thing is that the patient wins. Right. I agree with that. You mentioned also, Julie, um, urban. So one yeah. of the things we were talking about before we went online was that um, a large percent of telemedicine, even though it started yeah. out thinking that we could pipe in uh, subspecialty care to rural areas, and we've talked a lot about rural, one of the fastest growing segments is urban. Absolutely. So we kind of tend to think that they have all the resources that they need 
um, in a tertiary care center, but we're finding that they don't. Can you address that? Sure. Some of the largest organizations in this country, you know, also face those same challenges that Dr. Gwen talked about. And it may be a lack of physician resources, but in some instances, you know, even though they may have many physicians on staff available to them, just the challenges of, of, getting there in a timely fashion to deliver that care. Um, they could be in a medical office building on the same campus, but some of these, you know, large academic medical centers and large uh, facilities in these in these urban areas, um, you know, it may still take them 15 to 20 minutes to get there from their office to the ER. And or if they happen to be at home, you know, you can still be talking about driving in uh, from being on call that could take them 45 minutes to an hour, depending on the distance and depending on traffic. So if you think about all of those types of of aspects of, of getting there as quickly as you possibly can, telehealth really is the answer. When they can use their phone and or an iPad or their personal computer um, to get there in a matter of minutes uh, instead of, of an hour plus, to me, it really is, it, it's the answer. You know, I've heard many speak about Dr. Gwen, and I can certainly personally say myself and in the experiences that I've had with him and his practice and and some others that we've worked with is, you know, I've seen Dr. Gwen responding in, in less than two minutes before, mm-hmm. you know, two to three minutes sometimes. And, um, and so that's, you know, that's really a game changer when yeah. it comes to delivering this care. I know on our side, too, it's not just the access issue. It's also the volume inside a tertiary care center. Absolutely. Because, uh, Dr. Gwen, you mentioned that if you're working in one area and you're stacked up with patients, but then the ER calls and everything stops while you run. Yeah. I know one of the things we're talking about is models within hospitals where the existing providers keep with the patients that are there. And they outsource telemedicine programs and add additional people to their staff using a telemedicine program. So it's uh, kind of disruptive to kind of switch back and forth, whether you're in the center or not. Well, that's what uh, we've always done is supplement and add value because a neurologist in a hospital, in, in any hospital, rural or suburban or urban, can still do the consultation later on. So what we do is we stabilize, we make urgent triage kind of decisions and and then get the patient on a path during which he can then, everyone can take a deep breath and, and go about their business and, and take care of the final steps later on. So with the stroke, once the TPA is administered and it's decided that that patient is stable, they go off to the, the hospitalist admits that patient and the neurologist can come by later on. And because of the current structure of billing, he or she can still bill that patient for a consultation since um, our services are uh, done on a different model. Model. Yeah, so you bring up a great, great question. We hear it all the time with telehealth and that is reimbursement. So can you guys address a little bit about um, is Medicare paying? Is Medicaid paying? Are private carriers paying for telemedicine? I know in general in the field, licensure and reimbursement in years past have been barriers to care. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So I think, you know, Tanya, we're making great strides with reimbursement. And um, Georgia has been lucky for a long time that they've really been kind of leading the way in this respect. And and so we still have a long way to go. We have 29 states today that offer what we refer to as parity, uh, meaning that, you know, physicians can get reimbursed for, for delivering care remotely, uh, just the same as they could if they were standing at the, bed li- at the bedside. We have some states that do that specific to certain service lines. We honestly have some states that that don't 
do much of anything, even still today. But I think that in in every state, there is some form of legislation on the floor right now uh, up for debate. And so we're making great strides. We still have uh, the licensure issue, which we have to address, meaning that the physicians must maintain and go through the exact same processes in, in every state, regardless of what that state's uh, specific parameters are around medical licensure. And so that is a little bit cumbersome and can require uh, a little bit of time, a little bit of lead time. So today, for all of the states that Dr. Glenn provides care into, he has to go through that process. And uh, again, there's a lot of discussions being being had over ways to improve that as telehealth continues to expand and broaden. But But what I would say, Tanya, is that in, in a lot of states and in a, many of the programs that we've served for a long time now, they didn't wait on reimbursement. These programs are, are what's in the best interest of the patient, and they're what's in the best interest of the hospital. And there are models that exist today that make any of these programs very sustainable and very viable. And I quite honestly consider the reimbursement just to be the icing on the cake if you have it. Um, there's really no excuse in today's um, in in healthcare today to not be involved in telemedicine. And in my, if I might expand on that, um, when Medicare goes to an ACO model, accountable care organization model, and hospitals and networks have to have a pool of money, they're going to look at and say, what's the most efficient use of this money? And I think telemedicine in in general and teleneurology and specifically is going to be right up there at the top because again you pay us fractionally what you would have to pay someone else. And so that's why it's going to be helpful. Licensure is another issue. I have, I'll have i go on the record and say I, I don't believe there should be national licensure. I think it should remain somehow with the states for a lot of different reasons. Um, for one thing, it's good to catch capture bad guys. Um, <laughs> and you can do it more easily if you have to apply to every state because you're likely to catch somebody. And then there are other issues concerning autonomy and federal oversight and... and um, federalism and so forth but uh that we haven't found that to be horrible we can get licensures in every state we need to do and they're they take some time and that's why that's why frankly a university setting is probably not the best place to have a telemedicine especially teleneurology because the the turnover is high and you invest a lot of time and money in getting someone licensed and credentialed and then suddenly they leave that person leaves and you're left uh with someone else that's why in touch health is going to be a very big player, I believe, in the future, because we are committed to making, as a, as their first core neurologist, uh, acute care telemedicine uh, was acquired by InTouch Health this year. Uh, we're we're going to help them grow this into a, a, a an organization that's committed to the long term. Mm-hmm. I agree with both of you. I know we had the conversation in my business earlier in this week with in Georgia. We have rural stabilization grant money in the millions of dollars where. Some of our rural hospitals are trying to um, get into telemedicine and expand their resources. And often, you made the point, Julie, when they see the ROI, regardless of reimbursement on what they were letting out versus what they can now keep in, and in fact, it may keep a critical access hospital open, um, they're bypassing it. Like, let's not Mm -hmm. wait for the grant money. Let's just get Mm -hmm. rolling. So I agree with your point there. Also, too, I just wanted to make mention, Dr. Gwen, you talked about licensure one thing that's helping, it's not replacing state licenses, but the consortium, there's a, a compact of many states now that are really expediting for telemedicine licensure. It doesn't bypass anything, but it kind of goes into the nuances of the state, and that certainly will be more helpful than not helpful. Definitely. Absolutely. Believe it or not, we are to the end of our show. And the last thing I'd like to say is 
Um, No matter what we say about statistics and information, our listeners will remember stories. And in fact, in your specialty, you actually have life-saving stories. Are there just a couple of patients that might come to mind, Dr. Gwynn, where telemedicine has made a difference in that patient making it or not? I remember one of the earliest cases we had of a wonderful, say, was a middle-aged young man, a middle-aged man who uh, had a terrible stroke in rural Alabama several years ago. And um, it was one of our first uh, times we were in that hospital and in the, uh, around the Dothan area. And that patient was devastated. We were able to, uh, through uh, telemedicine, see that patient immediately, make the determination to give TPA, and at the same time, arrange transportation to the Marcus Stroke Center, where he was able to have a thrombectomy and taken out of the left side of his brain. And within a few days, he was back to normal, discharged from the hospital, and really no deficits. That wouldn't have happened without telemedicine, because we were able to make those decisions and help that ER physician, that which is a very time small period. hospital in, I believe, follow, And it was a very... It was a very good experience. Yeah, that's a great story. So glad we have resources. Um, Thank you both for being with us today. Boy, we've covered a lot of stuff. It's great to have experts in the field and to have good news, CW. We presented at the beginning a problem area with strokes being the fifth leading cause of death. And I think we've shown there are some solutions out there kind of coming more and more. So it's exciting that we're finding ways to be able to provide a wide variety of specialties through this sort of platform as well. So that's got to be great for the patients in those communities that otherwise would, like we've talked about, have to be on the road traveling either by car or ambulance to try to get this care. If they make it, that's the million dollar question. Well, I'd like to leave our listeners with how to get in touch with you all as far as resources. Julie, what about getting in touch with uh, so people know how to reach you? Sure. So you can go online to www.intouchhealth.com and there's that's our website and there's a, a wealth of information there, resources available to you, not just about Telestroke, but just about InTouch Health in general, as well as our physician services and uh, and all of the other things that we offer. So I would encourage you to visit that. If you have any questions, there's uh, there's a way to contact us there via email, via phone, whatever your preference may be. Sounds great. Well, again, thanks to you both. Thanks for all you're doing in the community and your specialties. And CW will sign off for one more show. If you haven't done so already, click on the Apple logo on the Top Docs Radio Show page. That'll take you to the podcast on iTunes where it lives and you can subscribe to it. That way, each week when a new episode comes out, it's downloaded straight to your device, ready for you to check out when it's convenient for you. If you've not done so already, get familiar with Women's Telehealth, womenstelehealth.com to learn about the high-risk maternal-fetal specialty care that they are providing through telemedicine as a platform. And we hope you turn around and share this information with your social media networks. You might just be putting some information in the hands of somebody that means something to you that really makes a difference in their life. Clearly, what we're talking about here is having some big impact on folks. So we hope you turn around and share it. We'll say thanks in advance for everybody that does that. To our guests, thanks for joining us here in the studio. And Tanya, as always, another great show. See you next time. All right. We look forward to seeing you all then. Good afternoon, everybody. Bye-bye.